You are now listening to Fixed Ops Chops, a podcast designed by top industry experts to provide you the cutting-edge information you need for a lucrative fixed operations department. Stay up to date on the hottest profit-strengthening products, services, and technologies. And now your host, CEO of Traction, automotive industry leader, and fixed operations expert, Dave Boyle. All right, everybody, welcome back to Fixed Ops Chops here from the floor of the NADA convention here in my hometown of Dallas, Texas. Um, if you've been following us along on Instagram and some of the other social media platforms, we're doing some of a mini version of my podcast here at the at the uh, show. We're talking to some people, movers and shakers in the industry. Um, I'm your host, Dave Boyle with Traction, um, and uh, this next guest, I'm really interested. I just met you for the first time, uh, Mr. Tim Jackson, who's the president of the Colorado Automobile Dealers Association. Uh, CADA, and uh, we were just talking before we went on on the mic here about some of the uh, some of the unique history of this. I'd like to talk to you a little bit about that before we get into the question and answer piece. Sure. I'm looking forward to talking to you about this because a lot of things going on in this industry, how they relate to dealers and governmental stuff and lobbies and stuff like that. So I really want to get your perspective on some of that. But before we do that, you said that uh, so the Denver CADA has been around since 1914. That's amazing to me. Yeah, <laughs> that's amazing to me. It's one of the oldest dealers. Of in the country. Fantastic, fantastic. And you're also involved with the Denver Auto Show, I understand. Um, that even predates that back in 1902. And you're giving you a statistic about the vehicles that were in there in terms of the types of vehicles. Tell, tell the audience what they Sure. In 1902, the very first Denver Auto Show, and keep in mind, in 1902, um, only um, the only auto shows that had been produced at that time were New York, which started in 1900, and Chicago in 1901. Denver Show predates Detroit's, which started in 1907. Wow, think and, about that. Yeah, think about that. Wow. And it predates LA's, which also started in 1907. So in 1902, that predates General Motors and Ford each by six years. Predates Dodge by 12 years because it started Dodge Brothers started in 1914. So um, it really predates the modern auto industry, right. and um, and and. In effect, it predates the internal combustion engine. Yeah, I was going to ask you, so what kind of cars were they showing? So they were showing, uh, in that first uh, Denver Auto Show in 1902, the cars that were on display, half of them, 27 cars. And by the way, we'll have that many in our Toyota exhibit or our General Motors exhibit right. or Ford exhibit or Stellantis right. exhibit. So 27 cars, half of them were steam-powered and half of them were electric. Think about that. Coming full circle on that. Coming full circle. People are surprised to hear that. Um, uh, people think of the Stanley Steamer as a carpet cleaner, but the original Stanley Steamer was produced by the Stanley Brothers, and it was a steam-powered car. Yeah, exactly. And um, and also on the, on electric, uh, Henry Ford had to make a choice in 1912 when he rolled out the Model T, and his wife Claire pushed him toward electric because at that time Claire Ford, his wife, Henry Ford's wife. Uh, was driving an electric car and she really liked it. What he didn't like about it was the same things we hear about electric cars today, 120 years later, and that is range anxiety and the time it takes to charge them. So that's why Henry Ford thought that the better way to go was gasoline power and internal combustion engine. He was also he was also influenced not just by Claire Ford, but he had a very good close personal friend right there 
lived down the street in Durban, Michigan, by the name of Thomas Edison. And Thomas Edison and Henry Ford were, were really good friends. Yep. And of course, Thomas Edison was all about electricity. Yep. So Thomas Edison also thought that Henry Ford should build an electric car. And Thomas Edison actually built an electric car, but it, did, it didn't get mass produced, but he did have one. So they, they stayed friends all their lives and actually um, bought vacation homes in Sarasota, Florida, which were next door to each other. And those and those homes still stand today and serve as museums. So if Henry Ford had listened to his wife, like most of us do, <laughs> we'd be all probably driving electric cars today and we wouldn't so we probably wouldn't have Elon Musk around right now. We wouldn't have to worry about the Tesla <laughs> the, the Tesla scenario or Elon Musk. Great. So um, it's their EVs are fun, and and uh, and EVs I believe are the future. There are still challenges to overcome, uh, including uh, cold weather. Yep. So if you're in North Dakota or northern Minnesota or Canada or something in the winter, that's going to be a challenge. And uh, towing, um, and I think that's where the problem with the Tesla Semi or the uh, Nikola and some of the other. Uh, uh, EVA semis will be range anxiety, or, you know, the range problem. Because right. you, if you if you followed social and followed the YouTube channels for the reviews, a lot of the review sites like uh, TFL Car out of Colorado and uh, out of Spec Studio out of Fort Collins, Colorado, uh, and others have done tests on the range, and uh, the range can drop by just towing a normal. And when I say a normal vehicle, not a super heavy load. But let's say um, an 8,000-pound trailer behind an F-150, right. and, and the range can drop anywhere from uh, a third to two-thirds. And I think on a third it'd be more bearable, but two-thirds that, that can be that can be scary. Because so what about the what about the concerns about you know, the, you know California in particular, and even we get it here in Texas with the, the power grid. And, you know, we had we had six days of super hot weather last year here in Texas, and they were telling us to turn our air conditioners off because we were taxing the grid and, and all that stuff. I mean, what happens when, you know, one out of every two has got a, an EV in their driveway and they're, they're, they're needing power to charge? What's, what, you know, is there, I mean, is that just propaganda or is that is that a, well, a real concern? I, I, I think it's a concern. I don't think it's a major concern. Um, now, we all think, um, we act globally but think locally, right? And, I'm thinking of our local power company, which is in a lot of Colorado Excel Energy, and they, they cover about seven states. And we're working with them on EV um, adoption, and uh, they assure us that there's no problem of capacity on the, on the grid. Um, now, you hear the reports out of California, maybe out of uh, Texas at times, too. Um, but grids can be upgraded, and grids will be upgraded, and grids should be upgraded, and I think that's a problem that can be overcome. Uh, the other thing on, on charging, um, we all, anybody that has an EV and, and travels some the way I do, we will plug into the fast um, or high-level DC charger. Yep. But for most of the time, we're charging at home at night in our garage, right. or I'm charging at my office in the daytime. Our office has had four level two chargers, basically 220 chargers. They're kind of slow chargers, but uh, that they will charge a car, say, over, over the course of a, a day shift. 
We've had four at our office, and I, I usually charge at the office. My wife charges at home, and they keep the vehicles pretty full on charge. But um, where the where the problem on the grid could be, if, if it develops, will be the fast charging. So. The, the DC charging, so current that it draws. Yeah. yeah, and like if you're charging ten Tesla semis at one time, right. it's going to be a big draw in the system. Right. So one of the other things I hear when I talk to dealers all the time, and this is you know your perspective from your role as an ad dealer advocate, you know, on the on the on the CADA. Um, you know, the, the, the manufacturers are really, in some cases, strong-arming a lot of dealers right now to spend a lot of money to be able to sell and service and, and whatnot EVs. In fact, I had a dealer tell me the other day that the, just the, 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 the safety precautions and some of the things they need to do to isolate the EVs from their ICE engine vehicles and whatnot was going to cost them about a million bucks. What's your, what's your take on, on all of that and, and, you know, the OEs really sort of forcing their dealers' hand here if you want to, you know, maintain your franchise, you got to spend these money. money. Yeah. Um, well, we've all heard of the Ford program, and, and Ford has, has been modifying their program, and that's good and that's important. Um, the um, nobody likes to, in our industry, of course, see uh, dealers strong armed by manufacturers or vendors or consumers or anybody else. But um, the um, I think. Ultimately, um, as an industry and, and as a franchise dealer industry for most of the traditional right. automakers that have dealers, we need to find a way to work together to um, to help create this adoption. We need to help, um, and, and that's what I'm hearing from most of our dealers. So, um, um, and that is that. Um, on Ford, for example, a vast majority of our dealers were ready to make the investment, and some even rural dealers, which are not high-volume dealers, after after they had the meeting, the dealer meeting in Las Vegas, would call and say, hey, I like the vision, I like the product, I'm amazed with the Mustang Mach-E, I'm amazed with the F-150, Ford F-150 Lightning, I'm going to make the, the investment. I hope my comp competitors don't, because if my competitors don't, that leaves that much more for me. And um, so a vast majority of them were already committing to the investment. Now, we um, sent a letter and, and advocated um, uh, less costly investment factor. But uh, for the most part, it's not an issue in Colorado the way it is in some states. Um, it may make a difference that Colorado is number five per capita on EV adoption in right. the country. Right. And in uh, those, for in, in your listeners and viewers are not aware, we're number one, California, number two, Oregon, number three, Washington, number four, Nevada, and number five, Colorado. And if you go to number six, it's Hawaii. And Hawaii and Nevada have traded because it was Hawaii number four and Nevada number six, now it's flipped. But Colorado's been able to stay in there at number five. Um, there's a thing in common about those states, if you notice, just think of them geographically, they're all western states. Yep. I can't tell you why that is, but it, it, seem, it does seem like, and we keep contact with the dealer associations around the country, but it does seem like there's been less uh, motivation to adapt 
in the Pacific, I mean, in the Atlantic Northeast, mm -hmm. or the, in, the, in the Southern states, or what some would call the Dixie states, the South in general, and even the Midwest. Those are the areas that are potentially slower to adopt, and I can't, I can't say why that is, because um, in the Atlantic Northeast, uh, most of their drive times are probably less than they are in the West. You know, what is the likelihood of Ford and GM and Stellantis and others selling directly to the consumer um, and then have the dealers, which is some sort of a distribution model where they're just the delivery centers? Um, well, that is the what I would call the $64 trillion question. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it's a, it's a huge question. Um, first off, um, notwithstanding the um, angst and anxiety right now between Ford and their dealer body because of the because of the changes that, that, that Ford is making, um, Ford ultimately needs to look at how many of their dealers um, did step up and said, "We'll make that commitment. We're, we'll meet you in the middle, and, and we'll make that commitment." Now, this isn't to argue that. Ford didn't um, go too far or got too aggressive or put too high a price on, on especially low volume in rural area stores. I think they did. But at the end of the day, once we get into this new model, I think it'll be um, a, a new arena for, the, for their dealers and for Ford. Back to your larger question about um, manufacturers trying to go direct, which um, Ford has said they don't have no plans to go direct, you know, and um, they said that. Anyway. They, they did say that, <laughs> and, and GM has said that, and Toyota has said that, and, and others have said it. So the, the laws in most states, and, and these are laws that have developed over time, they're not this month, last month, right. this year, or last year. Uh, in Colorado, the franchise laws date all the way back to 1937. And they look a lot different today than they did in 1937, but they date to 1937. So um, it would be, it would just be very, it would be extremely costly for an automaker to try to do that. And, um, and they'd also have to look at the risk versus reward. Are they really going to make more money if they don't have a dealer body? Frankly, we think that dealers save manufacturers a lot of money. Um, some may look at the Tesla bottom line and say they can do it fine without. Keep in mind that Tesla is a very unique uh, situation. It is it is a breakthrough company. Uh, Rivian hasn't even been able to do what Tesla's done so far. Lucid hasn't been able to do it. A lot of other startups have gone by the wayside even since Tesla got out in front. And um, uh, and their stock prices have, have just plummeted. Not, not the traditional automaker stock prices haven't too, but they haven't tumbled as bad. So um, the, the new EV startups on average have tumbled anywhere from uh, 80 to 90 percent where the traditional automakers have tumbled maybe 50 to 55 percent. It doesn't sound like a lot, but it's, it's literally billions and billions. Yep. yep. And, uh, and then thirdly, and I, and I, I would say that this is um, um, really a, a, important to watch. It's something that I watch, and that is, and 
since we're talking here on, on the fixed ops side of the automotive business. Uh, I'm, I'm uh, incredibly um, uh, fascinated by the fact that General Motors dealers have had the opportunity to repair over 11,000 Teslas based on the RO's repair orders in their system. Four, what's that? It's amazing, right? Yeah. And Ford dealers have done a lot, too. They just haven't pegged a number on it yet. And Stellantis dealers have, too. So why is that? Um, most Tesla owners, if they're honest, Tesla car owners, if they're honest, will tell you that it's, it's really extremely hard to get the appointment on the calendar and get them to fix the car in the timeline that they're supposed to. Yeah. Almost impossible from yeah. what I've heard. Yeah. You know, I've got I've got two friends that own them, and I think service anxiety is bigger than range anxiety, yeah. right? And I think that uh, you know, I my, my take on this is is I, you know, I, first of all, I don't think dealers are going away ever, um, but I do think it's going to change. I also think that dealers are some of the most resilient entrepreneurs ever on the on the planet. They'll, they will survive whatever change that it is, and I the reason I think that dealers won't ever go away. You know, this might be a bit selfish from the side of the business that I've been in for 30 years, but you know, no matter how well cars are going to be built going forward, they still need service and repair at some point. And you know, when I tell people they're still going to need service department, oh, over-the-air updates. Over-the-air updates to such a small percentage of the overall repair population of a car, they still need brakes, they still need tires, they still need weapon blades, they still need lights, they still need, you know, interior repairs, squeaks and rattles, all that kind of stuff, body work, all that kind of stuff that dealers, that dealers do and do well. I believe that that's the future for the dealer. I think they're going to see whatever happens on the sales side, and however the model changes, and whether it becomes a, a you know a full you know a different distribution model where they just get paying you know a transaction fee to deliver the car or whatever. The opportunity for dealers to make a lot of money and continue to grow their business on the service side, I think, is even is even going to be greater because I think as these vehicles continue to evolve and get more complex, it's going to be more challenging for the aftermarket, you know, to continue to work on some of these vehicles, and that's going to play right into the dealer's hand. And I, I've been saying this now for not that I'm any kind of a profit because um, I'm not, but I've been saying this now for a decade that I see it. You know, we've always sort of viewed our industry, car dealers. We've always talked. To about services being out back, you know, back of the house. I see this shifting over the next decade, and I see that the front of the house is going to become the service department. These are going to become mega service centers, potentially with some satellite service facilities and whatnot. Um, but the focus is going to be on servicing, on maintaining these vehicles, on charging these vehicles, on doing the things that, that people are going to need to continue to, you know, maintain their, whether it's an ICE vehicle or an electric vehicle, maintain the vehicle and, and have that ownership life cycle that's going to be important to them and the, the delivery of the vehicle whether we're taking them and dropping them off in their driveways or whether they're picking them up at showrooms to me I don't think it matters at that point I think what really matters is that the dealers provide a service that the manufacturers can never do and that's servicing the vehicles at a local level and I think that's the challenge that Tesla has right now Right, they can't service these vehicles. I mean, I get I have a friend in California that's got one, and I got a friend that's got got one in France. My business partner has one in France, and servicing them is a royal pain in the butt. Right. You know, and um, I think it ultimately may be their undoing. Yeah. No, and he, he said a lot there, and and and, and um, let me just from a broad sweep say, I hear you. Um, 
understand you and, and I agree with you. I think your um, your analysis overall, long term, is is exactly right. And frankly, it, it mirrors or matches what I've been saying for the last ten years. But but to your point, and back on the on the service end, that's really to me the the biggest challenge with the direct sales model is the servicing of those vehicles. Absolutely. And, um, and, and we did something that I think you'll find interesting uh, and maybe uh, visionary or even fascinating, and that is, this, this was about three years ago, so I, I need to go back and, and update the model. But we literally, I, I took, I, I assigned this to a kind of a data, um, a, a data nerd. He was a data. He's a data nerd. He's a longtime friend of mine, and he loves to work with uh, databases, build databases, and, and work with uh, data, compute data. Yep. And so my question of him was: I said, "Here's here's my question, and here's what I need you to do to find the answer." And that is, okay, in fixed ops, is, is with any part of the current dealership, we want our customers to be satisfied, right? We want we want to not have unhappy customers. Right. We want to have not have un, un, unhappy reviews online. So, um, but if if we don't do a good job, we're going to get an unhappy review. So, um, he did a, a deep dive drill down on looking at the um, Google ratings of all of the, I'm going to single them out because this is who he looked at, because it was the only um, really factory direct uh, car model at, at the time, and that was that's Tesla, because Rivian and Lucid are still well less than two years old, this yep. was about three, three and a half years. So we took each Tesla location, service center location, drilled down on those to um, determine their, their local Google rating. The review, the review rating, the average yeah. rating. Yeah. So, and most of them, I can tell you, were 3.2 right. to 3.6 percent. Yeah. And then we went down Dealer Street. And this is yeah. a bit more challenging for him. We did, went down Dealer Street, and we started with the high ends, the Audis, the Mercedes, the uh, Porsches, the uh, BMWs, the Infinities, the Lexus, yeah. and others, to see what kind of com comparable rating that they have. And it's not going to surprise you, I don't think. If I tell you that there was, and it may not sound like a lot, but but it, it's pretty it's pretty significant. There was on average a uh, eight tenths of a percentage difference. That's eight tenths of a, on a scale of zero to five. So that doesn't, means doesn't on, surprise me, and that's huge. Yeah, and that's huge. It really is huge. It's huge because that eight tenths of a percent really is on a universe of five to zero, not a hundred to zero. So if you compounded it out, it would be monumental. But um, uh, that really told the story. By the way, I, I said I, don't, I want people to believe this too when we when we tell them. So the compilation out of that came to over 300 pages. Over 300 pages. It, it costs some money to do that. I'd like to go back and do it now. And I'd heard, I've heard, I've heard. So this is why it'd be really interesting to do it now. That somebody in t within Tesla, their customer satisfaction people, if they have. Um, figured out that they've got they've got to get their Google ratings up, so some of those have gone up. But um, 
Um, once I, I, I did a personal drill down in Denver, and, and it's still six tenths to eight tenths of a percentage point difference. So why is that? Well, because the franchise, an independently operated franchise car dealer, can take better care of their customers through their fixed operations yep. uh, team than a factory direct model. And there's no question of that. There's, there's no question about it. Thank you for listening to Fixed Ops Chops with Dave Boyle. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to our podcast and be sure to visit our website at www.traction.com. That's traction with an X to join the conversation and discover our Fixed Ops bonus content.